It's been a long road of just being able to speak openly about God, about my life and what He's done and how He's helped turn it around. I know others are like, oh, it's just luck. You can see it that way. But for me, of what I've gone through in my life, He is evident. And it is evident to me that I need Him so that I can keep going. And I won't ever deny that. This is Big C, Little C, a podcast from Current Church in Franklin, Indiana, where we explore how the local church fits in with the global church and how the kingdom is at work on a local level. Current Church meets on Sunday nights at 6 at The Gear in Franklin and exists to encounter God, equip the church, and engage the world. We believe that whatever God is going to accomplish in this world, He is going to do through the church Big C. These are our stories and the testimony of the power of God in everyday lives. Find out more at currentchurch.net or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Now here's your host, Jeremy. Hey, we're still here. Anything going on? This summer, you can expect at least three new episodes, counting this one. Got this one with John Allen, and then an outro with a front man episode of the Big C Little C podcast. Then we bring the Palmers back with Craig and John Allen, Leilani and Mila, to talk about their sights set toward the Philippines, and then maybe you. Let's get into this one. Most of you have probably heard some of Jonathan's story. And again, in only 45 minutes, we're only going to get some of Jonathan's story. But it's good. Thanks for listening. We were at an elder meeting at the Five, the Coffee House Five. And uh, that was when Craig was first telling us about some of the future plans. And during the course of that, your background was brought up. I don't remember. And Gene, like, punched me. And he said, that's your next podcast episode. You need to have John Lynn. And I've been wanting to have you for a long time. I don't even know if I'm going to shut the podcast down. I mean, the current stories still exist. Yep. And right. people are still my friends. And I still have access to the studio. So I don't, I don't know that it's over. But... Uh, I think it's just beginning. You guys have had some news this summer, and we as a church have had some news this summer. It feels timely to have you in. I've heard bits and pieces of your story. I think most people at Current have. I have not heard your entire story. Even this past Sunday, I heard you talking about learning to speak English. I don't even know when that was. I don't know how many languages you speak. <laughs> I so maybe I'll start there. Like, when did you learn how to speak English and what were the circumstances thereof? Um, I was probably about seven and a half, eight. Um, so my mom had married um, an American, called him an uncle for a while and then dad. But we had, I had moved in with my mom when I was seven and a natural disaster had occurred, um, Mount Pinatuba erupted. We were living in the Philippines and they had to evacuate just about everybody that they could that was closest to um, the mountain or the volcano. Um, ashes coming down, um, people knocking on doors with 
disfigured faces asking for help. Um, you remember this? I do. Wow. I sure do. Because um, it wasn't long after I had moved in with my mom and my stepdad that this event occurred. And fortunately, my stepdad was in the military. So, and we were living on a naval base. So it was, you know, take care of the military families first. Well, they wanted to send um, people off to their closest family. The close, the, all our family on my mom's side was in the Philippines. So obviously they weren't going to keep us there. Um, my stepdad, on the other hand, his family was in Indiana. So we traveled by submarine, by ship, by army, military, airplane we rode on the cargo part of that it wasn't the most comfortable so it was about seven seven and a half and made our way to the united states of america for the first time um and i met my stepdad's family um all white folks not trying to sound you know indifferent but growing up in the philippines you know six seven years old i've not seen you know a different skin color than what is mine and so they took us in you know, loved on us, um, did not understand a lick of English. I do remember being at an airport. I think we were in Alaska and one of the flight stewardess had approached my brother, my half brother and my half sister and I, we were sitting there and I remember her handing a banana to my sister and she said, yes. And then my brother said no, and I looked at her, and I went. I shook my head, <sighs> nodding yes, and then I said no. Oh. I said no. And she's like, okay. And then she walked off, and I was like, where's my banana? Wow. <laughs> so I kind of confused, you know, just the simple words like that. Um, so we lived in Seymour, Indiana for a few months. Um, it was around summertime because I remember going camping and turning eight in Indiana. And then they finally clean, got the base cleaned up, you know, rebuilt some homes, and then we were allowed to return to the Philippines. So upon returning, I was enrolled in the Dodd School, which is the Department of Defense um, school, American school, and enrolled in ESL. I did not know English whatsoever, and I remember that experience. I was about Leilani's age. I was eight, going on nine, and sitting there and watching everybody just talk and I'm in class, and I remember learning the word behind, near, um, looking at words like lasagna and pronouncing it out lasagna, or knife, pronouncing it out knife, mm -hmm. just because that's yeah. what the letters look like to me, so I'll pronounce it out. And it was really hard being, you know, there was about four of us, and then the teacher, and I remember one day thinking, you know, I can't do this, I don't know why I'm doing this. Nobody asked me if I wanted to do this, and a couple of students that were in front of me, you know, just laughed, and I could understand why they were laughing, basically looking at me that I'm never going to get it, and that was a motivation, you know, a motivator for me, and shortly after that, my stepdad got his orders, and we moved to Japan, so here I am learning English, learning how to use, you know, Utensils. I was used to eating with my hands. Not that we didn't have any utensils. It was just, you know, I'm so used to eating with hands. Yeah. So catching a little bit of English and then having to move to Japan. And I started third grade in Japan. I turned nine in Japan. So short few years. Um, and then I remember my third grade teacher and another, a couple other teachers talking in front of me about whether or not I should still be in ESL because they weren't quite sure 
how much I'd progressed because I hardly ever talked. And they were just like, well, I think she needs to be in there. And I was like, well, maybe we should, you know, put her in and then kind of evaluate. And I spoke up and I said, are you talking about me? And they just all kind of looked at like, well, I guess she's fine not going to ESL. I said, yep, I'm okay. And that was that. Wow. So by the time I was nine, I, I understood, you know, the English language. I guess I not necessarily understood, but I could speak it, you know. Yeah, so we lived in Japan for, I don't know, I'd left halfway through my seventh grade year. So third grade all the way to seventh, quite some time. <laughs> How different is English? Are the characters the same as Filipino? Um, I would say the, let's see, Tagalog is a dialect, one of the dialects. There's at least seven, eight. Yeah. It's that particular dialect sounds more Spanish, kind of like pantalon. Okay. You got pantalones, you know. So it's obviously the Spaniards invading the Philippines. It has its origins and its roots there as well. So it's more similar to that. In what town were you born? City. Um, yeah. <laughs> Manila. I was born in Manila. Were you? That's the capital, yeah. So you said you moved in with your mom? I did. At, I, um, so where were you before that? With Mamai. Um, that's what you call grandma in the Philippines. Really? Um, she helped raise me. And those are your earliest memories? Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember living with her and moving around a bit. Um, I remember, you know, my... <laughs> My life's like this big book. Yeah. Um, all I knew was that my mom was out trying to find a better life. Um, and she did. She found it. You know, she found someone um, who would love her and her other kids. My sister has a different dad. Um, my brother is actually my cousin. Hmm. My mom's nephew, adopted by my stepdad. Really? So... We're all family. <laughs> so before the fancy plane ride to the Alaska airport, what was your perception of North America, of the United States? Um, or American people in general. Um, well, moving in with my stepdad and my mom, he he was tall, really tall. Um, I followed him around the house, and I turned off everything for him because I wasn't used to that much electricity wow. from where I had really? lived. One of the memories I have living with Mamai, we didn't really have any lights in the house that we lived in. It was basically a, it was probably about this big, the studio right here. Um, corner part had a drain on the floor, and that's where you would shower. And your shower meant you went and pumped the water and used a tabo, which is basically a big cup with a handle, and you poured it over yourself. There was no shower head. Um, and then there was a stove, and my uncle had built us a long wooden bench-like, and we would use uh, a straw mat to lay on top of that, and we would lay on that. That way we weren't laying on the ground. Um, if he was visiting, he would sleep on that, and me and Mamai would sleep on the floor on the straw mat. Um, so moving from that, you know, the only light we had was daylight and then candles. I was little. <laughs> But at the time, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think this, you know, this life is not what it not should be. All. No. Um, yeah. I remember going to the rice fields with her and learning how to plant rice and just watching her. I remember going to a big wash area where she washed other people's clothes to earn money. And I went with her. I just went everywhere. And I learned. So to me, that was not, you know, at that age, it wasn't like, oh, I'm missing my childhood or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and then not too far from where we lived, 
there was a landfill, huge landfill, and my friends and I, we'd run over there, climb up the mountains of trash. It wasn't trash to us. It was treasures. I mean, we'd find broken toys, but we have a toy, you know? Um, And when the rain would come and it would flood the streets, we would swim as long as it was safe. It didn't matter what color it was. It was, that was our, our uh, pastime. That's how we knew how to have fun. So, but yeah, moving in with, you know, going from that and moving in with my stepdad who had televisions and game, you know, this, the regular Nintendo where you had the, uh, sure. the duck hunt. Um, yeah. He had every, he had all the lights on, you was know, it? which was great. It was, the, the house was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was right by the beach. They had a fishing boat right outside. But I was like, okay, you got to turn this off. And then, you know, I heard him say, who keeps turning off the lights, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, it's me. <laughs> A question I have right now, and this probably would be better placed later in the story, but I'm super curious right now. For those of us who have been Americanized since birth, every once in a while we'll see a documentary or we'll read a story or we'll hear a missionary and our hearts will be momentarily pricked. But then we go back to our reality. We don't live in a state of this is extra, this is more, this is special. You've been here a while now. Is your day-to-day still colored by a lot of this past, or do you fight that like the rest of us? Does that feel like a couple lifetimes ago sometimes, and you're living in your Franklin, Indiana, Americana? Um, I think I would say probably a little bit of both. Like, there's no denying that I've been Americanized. Um, It would be hard not to, just because I've grown up here. I've lived in America longer than I lived in the Philippines. But that is not to say that I have forgotten my roots or where I came from. I will always forever remember the hardships that my family, my mom especially, and my my family went through to make sure that I got out of that. That life may not have been done the way I would have envisioned, but my mom found a way to provide better rather than what she had. Now... On a day-to-day basis, there's, you know, um, there's times where I'm like, yeah, this is great. I can go to the store and just buy basically whatever I want, you know. Um, But there are also times like, we don't really need that. We want it, but we don't need it, you know. Um, And like you said, there's, you know, we'll watch a a documentary or hear about a missionary and your heart, you know, is tugged. And um, I remember my mom saying, you know never forget where you came from. Um, I remember growing up hearing her say, you've become Americanized, you know, you've forgotten who you are. And I have not. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm here. Why not take advantage of what is here rather than living, you know, where I was and preventing myself from growing and using all the resources that is before me, you know? And that was something that she and I (laughs) had argued about or didn't, see eye to eye about yeah i am um, it appears you live your reality is still through that lens of where you've been how do you think that affects your parenting and the way these girls are being raised oh that's a it's a heavy question jeremy um i think it would be hard for others to understand unless they knew my history and my background of how i grew up mm-hmm. was there love in the family I guess it depends on your definition of love. Did I have a mom and a dad in the home? Yes. Was there pain? Was there abuse? Unfortunately, yes. And it's not, you know, oh, you need a disciplined. 
I knew what I did. I knew when I was in trouble. I knew if I lied, I would get in trouble. And there was that. But then there were instances where this isn't right. I know this isn't right. And there were several times where other family members would speak up and say, hey, you can't do that, you know, to someone who is inflicting pain on me. So when I found out, I was, you know, um, I guess I could also add, I didn't, you know, grow up or go through high school or college thinking, I want to be a mom, you know. I mean, I knew eventually it would happen, but, you know, I know I have a lot of friends who are like, all I want to do is just be a mom. I want to have kids. That wasn't like, not that I didn't want to be, you know, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't like that's my sole purpose in life is I just want to have babies and be a mom. Probably because I wasn't sure what I would be like as a mom. And I was afraid. And I remember finding out that we were pregnant. And I remember crying and being so scared. And Craig being there saying, at least you know what not to be. So as far as this day, raising my girls, um, do they get discipline? Yeah. Do they get in trouble? Yeah. Do we correct them? Absolutely. But the love... This definition of love is unconditional. And that's all I want them to know is that regardless of what they do, mom is here. Mom is going to love them. And I refuse to repeat the past that I had and place it on them. And I refuse to allow that ugly past be a determining factor of how I will raise them. I mean... I guess it kind of both, you know, goes both ways. I use it as a, no, I'm not doing that kind of thing. Um, I won't be like that. I won't treat them like that. I won't talk to them like that. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm far from it. But I do. I've, I've given myself a pat or two on the back, like, mm-hmm. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> um, so it wasn't easy. Um, there's still days where I feel like I'm facing the challenge and days I feel like that's creeping up and it's easy to go back and pull that out and be that individual that I don't want to be. Um, but I also know the, the redemption that I went through, the, I don't know if you want to call it cleansing, but the reality of knowing that despite the individual not loving me or feeling like that I was loved by that individual. I know of a God that loved me and this is what I'm going to show them. That makes sense. I'm, I'm going to be a bad interviewer tonight because uh, you're fine. the things you're saying it's a are, lot. It's are putting a lot. me all over the place. And, and you mentioned college. So I'll ask you this and I know we've got blanks to go back and fill in, but you, I didn't go. <laughs> you were, you were an accomplished football player, right? Soccer. Football. Yes. I, uh, I played soccer in high school. I enjoyed it. Injured. It was my senior year. And at that time, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. You know, I had family members that were like, oh, you could go and be a journalist. You could go and be a lawyer. Like, that's what you want me to be. Yeah. I am scared to death. And my senior year, I didn't really have what I felt like would be support from family on what I should be doing. I did go to an interview um, at a private college and was offered to play I needed to increase my math scores, but in the end, as rewarding as it felt, and I remember receiving the letter that I was accepted, and I remember going home and showing that to someone, there was no, for me, it was a lot of gratification, satisfaction, like, look what I did, despite what you said I wouldn't do, and there was nothing. It was like, oh, 
just a piece of paper. And in my heart, I knew what I had accomplished. And I wanted to go, but I also knew that if I went, I would waste all of that, whereas another individual could really use it. Um, I knew I wasn't ready. Huh. So it shocked my whole entire family because I even applied for other scholarships that I received. And it shocked my whole entire family when I said, I'm not going to college right now. So they asked what I was doing. I'm moving to New York City to work with the homeless. Oh, that's great. How much are you going to get paid? This is pre, pre-Jesus for you? This is right after Jesus. Okay. Like, I got saved at 16, 17, and this was in 2002. I graduated in 2002. So that was a missional yes. endeavor. Well, we had, sorry, I guess I should rewind. So after graduation in uh, May of 2002, the youth group took a mission trip to New York in June. Okay. So then when I finally decided what I was doing, and I told my family, and they asked, well, how much money are you making? And I said, I'm not. I'm going as a missionary, so I have to raise money. And it was basically yeah. nothing. Um, my family did not support that. Um, I remember speaking with my grandpa. He passed a year after I had moved out there. He was very supportive. And, you know, I know my grandma was like, you know, we just want the best for you. But obviously I was making a big mistake, according to some people, because that's just here in America. That's that's what you do. You graduate high school. You go to college. You meet your loved one. You create the American dream. That all changed for me when I started going to church. Wow. We went on that missions trip. I was 18 and soon to be 19. And I just remember it was a week-long missions trip, and I remember not wanting to leave and really feeling like this is where I should be. Hmm. Um, and got back on the, on the van and told one of the youth leaders, and she looked at me. She's like, I know. So that was in June, and by November of 2002, I had flown out to New York City and moved Speaking with Jonathan Palmer here on the Big C Lucy podcast. Okay, I'm gonna from here on out. I'm gonna try to be more sequential, more chronological. It's, it's kind of hard so, though because I gotta give a little backstory. <laughs> so we had you in Japan until the seventh grade, right? Yep. I think that's where we left off the yeah that aspect of it. So then, what after that? My dad got his orders, and we moved to Great Lakes, Illinois. So halfway through my seventh grade year, we moved from Japan to Great Lakes, Illinois. Um, he was uh, the recruit commander at the Naval Training Center, um, and that was a, a different scenery for me as well, going from the Philippines to Japan, from Japan to North Chicago. <laughs> um, first day of school, I, uh, I was dropped off on my dad, and by lunchtime, I was called to the principal's office. And of course, everybody's, you know, yeah. everybody's looking up like, oh, the new girl's in trouble. So I walked into the principal's office, and he said, I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, you are at the wrong school. So my dad came and picked me up and took me to the proper school. No kidding. And um, upon looking at my transcripts, I apparently had taken all the classes that they were still teaching. So already the new kid and the teacher went ahead and asked me if I could help him grade papers of my peers that probably wasn't the greatest idea because <laughs> then people did not like me even more <laughs> um, so I did that um, my brother and sister were going to the high school there as well um, a lot of changes happening and by the by the end of my eighth grade year my dad had said we're going to move you down to Seymour Indiana to what I'm sorry where <laughs> 
Seymour, Indiana. That's where you're going to go to high school. Cool. Thanks. And so summer of my eighth grade year, right before my freshman year, we drove down from Great Lakes, Illinois, to Seymour, Indiana, and I lived with my um, grandparents for a while until my dad retired from the mil- from the Navy and bought a house, and him and my mom moved to Indiana after that. But that was also another change, you know, from North Chicago mm-hmm. to Seymour, Indiana, where John Mellencamp is. <laughs> <laughs> His song was always played every Friday night after the football games. <laughs> That's special. Yeah, and it was it was a it was a hard transition um, going from North Chicago, where I was told that I was clearly not black, to a small town where I was told clearly that I am not white. And I said, that's, yeah, it's obvious, but I got a great tan. Um, And it was an eye-opening experience as well, to say the least, mainly because it's a small town. You have to have a last name in that town. Yeah. And mine at the time was Perez. That's not a very well-known last name. That's an outsider last name. (laughs) Did playing soccer help assimilate? Playing any type of sports not only helped me get to know other individuals. I played softball and I played soccer, um, and I managed. I helped manage the boys' basketball team all four years that I was there. And being in different clubs, the Bible Club, um, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, it it helped me get to know other individuals, um, get to know, like you, you know, get to know the community and those that are in the community who to stay away from, (laughs) who to hang out with. But I also dove so much into school activities and outside of the home activities to keep me sane, to keep me alive, I guess is what I could say. That was my driving force. Anything I could do to stay away from home, I was doing. Okay. It, It was my saving grace. But by nature, you do like to be involved, right? I mean, was I do. It... I love, um, I love helping yeah. wherever I can. Um, I try to anticipate where help is needed. Um, even when I started going to church, I wanted to go on multiple church trips, but I didn't have family that would help pay for that. So, several of the church elders and my youth pastor even said, "Hey, you know, maybe we could find you something to do around the church, and we could put money in your fund." And that could help you. So I was like, okay. So I painted, you know, in the church. I went out in um, church grounds and pulled weeds out and earned my money that way. And whatever else, you know, babysitting, whatever I could do. By the time you were in high school, was there some emotional whiplash from your journey? I mean, you probably knew it was not like other people's story, but it was your reality. So had it taken a toll on you emotionally and mentally? And did you find some stability in the Seymour years? I think what really took a toll on me during my high school years was the fact that I was trying to keep home life from being exposed, I guess you could say. But I did meet some really close friends that were able to see it for themselves, and I didn't have to say a thing. Um, I didn't have to explain anything, and that helped. Um, and emotionally, there was not really anyone there to speak to, so all of that was bottled up. Um, and another backstory is that at an early age of nine, I found release in a way of cutting. Mm. 
and that carried at nine because I had seen my older sister. My sister's three years older than me. And any anything that was bad that was occurring instead of me fighting back or standing up for myself, I took it out on me. It's uh it's kinda hard to to explain that part, but that was my release. So that carried on until I was about seventeen and <laughs> typical high school seventeen, my boyfriend breaks up with me. It's the end of the world. Yeah. My mother doesn't understand me. I have no help. I have no, you know, it's just, this is the end. I can't do any of this anymore. Um, And I had, I had contemplated um, ending it all at the age of 17. And I played softball and there was a girl that kept bugging me. She and I were the only two people, the only two players that were going to play center field. And Mm -hmm. she was a senior so she got first dibs, you know, for the position. And she kept bugging me. She's like, hey, you should go to church with me. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't do that church thing. And she's like, well, we can go get some Subway to eat before. I'm like, well, free food. I'm all about it. So I went one Wednesday evening, and I said, you can't leave me, okay? Like, I don't know anybody at your church, so you can't leave me. So she took me to Subway. We got some food, went to her house. And I'm like, it's a pretty cool house. You know, I met her mom and dad really nice people and then we went to church and we sat there during worship worship started playing and then she got up and I'm like where, where are you going she's like I gotta, I gotta go and sing I'm like you said you wouldn't leave me <laughs> so I like immediately was like you know closed up yeah. and uh, that very night uh, there was a song which I still remember it's called This Is My Desire that she sang that the youth group had played during worship and reading the words, this is my desire to honor you. So you remember this I song do. from your very first church encounter. I sure do. Um, and I just remember thinking, if there is, if my own blood can't love me the way I should be loved, but yet there's this person, this thing that you call God, if he can love me through all this mess and understand me, I guess I'll give it a try. And so that night, I guess you could say I got saved and I surrendered. And ever since then, I would go to Wednesday night church. I would go to Sunday night church. I dove into reading my Bible and just being surrounded with those people. And to this day, her name's Bury. I called her Burrito because her real name's Brianna. And I couldn't pronounce that quite clearly. She and I are still friends to this day. Um, And so anytime... I wanted to do anything or be anytime I wanted to be out of the house, I dove into church, I dove into sports, I dove into school and wherever I could help, you know, if you don't have to ask me, um, I'm, I know you need help. I'm going to help you. <laughs> My favorite thing in the world is to hear different stories about how God draws people to himself. And sometimes he uses us. And I mean, he obviously used Bree, but I'm, you are a discerning cognitively thinking individual who was resistant to go to church, but God drew you that night, the very first night you surrendered Mm -hmm. after going hesitantly at best. What was your perception of Christ, if anything, before that night? I think growing up. Well, I had gone to, you know, I don't want to say that I was raised in a Catholic family, um, but I've gone to a Catholic church before. That's what our, my background, you know, growing up, my mom 
but she wasn't, you know, she wasn't going to church every yeah every weekend. It was just around Christmas or Easter. Um, so I was like, oh, so he's just a, a God who sees you on those days, huh? Um, and then I would try a different church, you know, in high school, too, where I'd been invited by other friends. But I had also seen, and it's probably wrong, but I had also seen how that particular friend acted outside of church. Mm. And it's like, but you were just there, and this is what you spoke of, and you're doing the complete opposite. Well, I don't want that. You know, and nobody's perfect. You know, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that we shouldn't be doing. But at that time, that was the impression left on me. Like, well, if you can't take it seriously, how am I supposed to take it seriously? Like, if this is this thing is real. Um, but I also think I was at that point where I was just tired. I was tired of running. I was tired of crying. I was tired of doing it on my own. Um, and again, like I said, if if this is what this means to just surrender and that he would take care of me, okay, I'll do it. Um, and it hasn't always been easy, you know. There was never anything in the Bible about it being easy when you, yeah. you know, those who need rest come to me, you know, and lay your burden. And I did. I laid my burden. Um, and I don't regret it. It has definitely, I, I can't, I cannot imagine, and I've tried I can't imagine my life and what it looks like if I hadn't taken that route that night. Um, I probably wouldn't even be here, actually, if I hadn't. I'm fascinated because I think those of us who have good news to share and are hesitant to do so, sometimes we forget that people... People are hurting. People are needing. I I know Gene talked a lot about um, during these trying times of the pandemic that... People are looking for answers. We have the tendency to, well, I don't want to overstep. I don't want to impose, I, especially these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about Brie. It must have been partially because you'd already observed how she was not a hypocrite, maybe. That probably played into it. But what if she had backed out that day or hadn't asked? What a simple request. Come with me. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we'll go to Subway. And I mean, your beautiful family is here tonight. We're going to do another episode about head to the mission field. I mean, talk about fruit. Yeah. It's from a center fielder, senior softball <laughs> player. It's amazing fruit stemming from one simple act of obedience. It's crazy to think about that. Exactly. Exactly. And while that, you know, we, she and I visit that. I, I visit her from time to time and she comes up here. But we we visit that scenario, that time in our lives where, I've even asked her, what made you ask me to go? She's like, I don't know. I just, I felt like you needed something. Um, And we'd been praying for you, you know, the youth pastor's wife and I, she's best friends with her. And I recently was able to visit with her as well. Uh, Johnny and Carol Spivey were my youth pastors. And I was able to visit with Carol just a couple of weeks ago when I was down in Seymour oh, and wow. you know she's like well Brie told me about you guys you know your missions and I looked at her and said yeah this is you and Johnny's legacy that's gonna be thrilling it continues on <laughs> uh, I can't, yeah that's to be able to see that while you're still here yeah. and and be able to trace it back so tangibly uh, so we talked about the opportunity to possibly play soccer but no college how did you get from high school in Seymour to I don't know if we're going to skip over a bunch here, but, you know, how did you get to our circles if, to if that's circle. not too big of a yeah. leap? Um, well, no, not necessarily. Just because, you know, I went to New York. 
I was there for about three years, moved back, and started going to college at Ivy Tech. I felt like it was time for me, and I went for um, visual communications, which entailed photography and graphic design. And then um, within that, I, you know, dated an individual and became part of that circle of friends. Um, And then I moved from, you know, Seymour to Columbus, from Columbus to Greenwood, and then started attending, you know, a college and career, you know, Jesus (laughs) um, Bible study. Didn't really work out as I had planned, but remained friends with some of those individuals. And then... um, A little blind date led me to um, this man over here that I call my husband, and he and I, you know, we had mutual friends that we didn't really quite know until later on, and so when we started dating, he was already attending Current, and I started attending as well, and we have been at Current since 2008, at least I have, because 2009 we got married, so... Is that about when you moved in to the Gene and Paula yes. complex? Yes, it was uh, spring of 2009 when I moved in with Gene and Paula. So I lived there from April to November of 2009, right? From Greenwood, right? So yeah. Columbus, uh, then Greenwood, then Gene and Paula's house. Yes. Then marriage. Then marriage. Yeah. What was then uh, kids. <laughs> how did the current church vibe mesh with your previous church experiences? Was that an adjustment? Um. A little, but not a whole lot. Jean reminded me so much of an older version of my youth pastor. Hmm. Um, That personality of just go, 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 and just crazy, you know. Um, So I felt felt at home. I felt welcome. The music definitely speaks for itself. Um, And the tight, the tight-knit congregation that we have, we are family like you know who's in service and who's not (laughs) and i like that you know i've been to other churches where i'm like yeah i was at church like you were i didn't see you i was i was balcony yep third service by the way (laughs) you know Um, not that it's a knock on that but i i felt like that's where i should be and granted you know i was dating the guy that was going to church there too um then i met gene at a concert really one of the uh, band concerts, The Holiday, formerly known as Red Letter Reason. <laughs> and then he saw me again at the church, and he's like, yeah, cool. And then I was going through uh, housing issues, roommate issues um, at the time, and I, don't, I can't remember where we were. I don't know if you were at church or we were out to eat with a group of us, and I was just kind of sharing that. And um, Gene and Paula are actually, you know, he's like, you know, I've spoken with Paula. We have an extra room. You know, and there was no set time how long I need, you know, I could stay and whatnot. But it was definitely living there kept me grounded and accountable. Because um, I think oftentimes we get scared, you know, of our future and we could just yeah. do whatever and yeah. then uh, not stay the course. So living with them from April to November, it was like, okay, this is what you're going to do. And there were several times where Jean would speak into my life. And I remember even this particular day, um, I walked out of the house. And before that, during my devotional time, I had several things that I had journaled about that I was praying about doing. And I had already made phone calls. And one was in the clear. The other was like, well, we'll pray about it some more. And I remember walking out of the house to go to work. And Jean was out there. I don't know if he was getting ready to go to work or just got home. But he looked at me. He's like, hey 
whatever you're thinking of doing, don't do it. And I was like, Gee. oh, <laughs> hey, you have no idea. There's three of them. <laughs> you know, so I was like, oh, okay, I won't do it then. <laughs> and I didn't. I let it go. You guys have stood by their side for a while now as as elders and they've stood by our side and i know they've been a part of the process and i know you guys were away from current for a minute mm-hmm. and then when you came back you were just all in i don't know if there's a question there but like i that was i didn't know you guys because i came in the middle part when, yep. <laughs> and so when i saw you guys get involved so fast and, like, and what? Yeah, so, what are you doing <laughs> i mean you guys are just servants and you you have been and and i remember talking to you one time in the in the foyer at the gear <laughs> The gear 2.0? Uh, yeah, not that long ago. And you were just talking about how Craig, like you guys were talking about vacation, but he's like, well, then Sunday we need to be back. And that has been tangible, visible for the rest of us that you guys are there. We have a work day. You guys are first in, last out. That's been impressive. As I hear your story and talking about what you're getting ready to do, like you've kind of seen it all in a way. Is there a little bit of Teflon that comes with that? Like, I'm going to be okay. I've kind of seen some stuff. You don't have the, I got to talk myself into stuff. That's by nature. I've really got to talk myself. Talk. Yeah. A lot of internal dialogue going on, monologue. Do you sometimes get to skip that because you're just going to get involved and, and let the chips fall? Um, there's still some pep talk involved, um, especially recently with our decision about missions. Um, Craig and I knew this is what we were going to do. This is what we're going to do. And I cried. And I remember telling myself, it's that tough thing that I know I need to do, I want to do, but at the same time, don't, because it involves a lot. This time I have kids. And I'm lucky and fortunate and blessed to have a spouse who is like, you know what? God's not going to leave us if he's in it. And he's going to see us through. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely not. And then Gene pops in and he says, hey, remember those words, Mm. because there's going to come a time where you're going to feel challenged and you're going to feel like we're not supposed to do this. And that would be too easy. Um, So even just going through paperwork and interview, it's just like, oh, why is this happening? And then you start questioning. And at the same time, it's like, no, we're going to push through. We can do this. It it, it would just be way too easy if God was like, here you go. And there's no, there's no hill to climb. There's no mountain to climb. There's no river to cross. That would just be way too easy. Any, this is a very Cliff Notes version of your life, I realize, but um, are we missing anything absolutely that belongs in this episode? That's a lot, too. (laughs) That's not (laughs) Um, fair. I think ultimately, really, it's, and I've shared this with some friends um, that have had a bad experience with God or with the church. And not every experience is going to be roses. You know, you might be allergic to that or chocolates, whatever. But I think ultimately when I've spoken to them, oh, that's not for me, da, 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 I've tried to explain, you know, this is the solution for me. This is what saved me from going off the deep end. I've tried everything else and that didn't work out. And I've learned, you know, I'm going to be 38 and it's been a long road of just being able to speak openly Mm -hmm. about God, about my life and what he's done and how he's helped turn it around. I know others are like, oh, it's just luck. You can see it that way. But for me, of what I've gone through in my life, 
He is evident. And it is evident to me that I need him so that I can keep going. Um, And I won't ever deny that. Like, I've been scared to share with people about it. Like, you know, even mentioning it because I know people are like, oh, he's not real. Okay, he's probably not real to you, but he's real to me. And I know what he's done in my life. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. If I was a good podcast producer, I would find a version of This Is My Desire, and that would be our, our music. <laughs> I'm, sure sure you'll, I'm sure you'll look for one. <laughs> but before you go, top three sushi places in Indy. Ooh, or in surrounding Indy? areas. <laughs> surrounding areas. Drivable. Um, Ichiban's really good. Um, that's uh, off of 31 in Greenwood and Yokohama. Really good. I will say, I have to add this in. I know people are like, oh, I love sushi. I love the eel roll. Okay, first of all, when you go to Japan, you better not ask them to put cream cheese in your sushi <laughs> because they will look at you or probably even throw you out and be like, okay, no. Um, in Japan, there's no cream cheese in their sushi. <laughs> Got it. I remember people are like, oh, it's so good. I'm like, yeah, no, it's not really <laughs> sushi, but okay, whatever helps you eat that. <laughs> um, and let's see, what was that other place? Uh, Taku's pretty good down in Columbus. I've had their sushi before. So I try to, um, when I do raw stuff, sashimi stuff, it's the uh, the tuna for sure. And then they do the sal- salmon and then mackerel, which mackerel is a little more um, steamed or boiled. And then the girls actually love eating cucumber roll. So they're wow. getting there. And they like to snack on dry seaweed. So I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> Only the most important questions at the end. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Big C, Little C, a podcast from Current Church. For more information, visit currentchurch.net or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Current Church is located in Franklin, Indiana, and meets on Sunday nights at 6 at The Gear. Theme music written and performed by Still the Hand, imaging by Jessica Albertson. Please join us next time for more conversations on Big C, Little C. Little C.